She became as iconic a figure as her all-time thoroughbred champion. Penny Chenery, owner of the legendary Secretariat, died on September 16th from complications following a stroke. She was 95. On this edition of In the Gate, we'll relive a memorable conversation we had with Miss Chenery and others on the 40th anniversary of Secretariat's magical 1973 season. The event took place in Maryland because the premise of the discussion was that for almost four decades, the final time of that Preakness win was in question. Had Secretariat set a track and stakes record there, as he had in both the Kentucky Derby and, most memorably, in the Belmont Stakes? We'll detail that story in front of a live audience at the American Film Institute Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. Welcome inside the American Film Institute Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland, for our first ever In the Gate event, Secretariat. Timing is everything. My name is Barry Abrams. I host and produce the In the Gate podcast for ESPN.com, and we're so glad that you're with us. Normally, our show is an audio offering on ESPN.com, but with so many wonderful people and such a beautiful location, we had to let everybody see this. And so we're glad that you could be here and work with us on this. When Secretariat authored his valedictory address in the Belmont Stakes, June the 9th, 1973, Jack Nicholas, the great golfer, was one of those watching. And when Secretariat crossed the line, he did two things. Jack Nicholas applauded and he cried. He had spent his whole life looking for perfection in his own career, said the great writer Haywood Hale Brune. In Secretariat, Jack Nicholas found that perfection. It was that kind of reaction, that kind of passion that Secretariat sparked that makes tonight's discussion relevant. Because while Secretariat obliterated the track records in both the Kentucky Derby and the Belmont Stakes, the latter of which by over two seconds, when normally records are broken in tenths of a second, a strange thing happened during the running of the Preakness, just a few furlongs up from where we are this day. The timer showed one minute, 55 seconds, clearly slower than a lot of people thought he had run. And it was a nagging little puzzle in a story that had been codified for so many years. It took a lot of effort, but the situation was finally rectified, and that's the story into which we're going to get tonight, beginning with our wonderful panel, starting with the legendary Penny Chenery, Secretariat's owner. His jockey, Ron Turcotte. And his biographer, a man of whom we can only aspire to be as great as he is, Secretariat's biographer, Bill Knack. <laughs> Ms. Chenery, let's start with you. For all of the years that you have lived this story, how have your thoughts on Secretariat kind of evolved as the years have gone on? Well, I've almost forgotten what he was really like. <laughs> because uh, the attention he's he's gotten, and excuse me, Bill, but sometimes the writers have more um, pay more attention to themselves possibly than the horse. And Secretariat is uh, he's uh, 
in stone as this. Uh, and of course, he was big and beautiful and and strong, but he was a lot smarter than uh, the general impression. There's a lot more about Secretariat than uh, the uh, the prototype. My Secretariat is the horse that I could go out to the barn in the morning and uh, he would come for the webbing and uh, nip at me and, and sort of get out of my space, you know. And he, he wasn't mean. He was just playful and bored and happy to do something different. And I never gave him peppermints. I did not approve. I gave him carrots. But uh, when he didn't win, he would not be friendly. He would go stand in the corner and beat himself up. Uh, but you you can love secretary any way you want to. <laughs> Ron, when a jockey gets on a horse, there's a certain chemistry that certain riders bond with certain horses. What was your method for bonding with Secretariat? Actually, I think that many uh, many writers could have bonded with Secretariat. He was such a lovely horse, uh, such a generous horse. He uh, he was a gift that you keep on giving, and uh, I uh, I don't really take credit for riding Secretariat because. He was a great, great horse. I mean, he was the greatest horse of all time. Well, Secretariat, he was so smart. You teach him something one day, the next day you hit him that way, and he would just uh, do it. Well, the funny thing about Secretariat is that uh, one morning the uh, um, for, there was some photographer trying to get a good shot of the horse, and so I, I stopped him, and turn his head toward the uh, the photographer and uh, he alert the guy took a few shots the uh, next day or a couple of days later same thing happened and uh, I just turned his head there well the next time they he heard a camera click he stopped and he turned around and he looked I said, man, you're getting smarter than me. <laughs> so I, that's how smart he was. I mean, he's, well, I don't mean I'm, star, I'm smart. <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to say. But he was really a smart horse. He was kind. He was generous uh, to, I don't know exactly how to explain it. But he's like, he was a gift, like I said, the gift that keeps on giving. It's not every day, Bill, that a person lives with a horse in a stall, unless that person happens to be the groom. You lived with this horse through the entire spring of 1973. What premonition did you have that began that process? Well, um, I think when, when he turned the corner coming into his three-year-old year, I was sitting at breakfast in Huntington where I live, and I read in the New York Times that Lucian and Penny had decided, instead of staying in Florida to run in the Florida Derby, that they were coming to New York to run in the three races in New York, the Bayshore, the Gotham, and the Wood. 
And I jumped up from the breakfast table and I screamed to my family, hot damn, secretary, it's coming to New York. Because I wasn't going to Florida. And it was just about the luckiest thing that ever happened to me, uh, aside from becoming a turf rider about two months uh, after he walked on the racetrack as a maiden. And I walked on the racetrack as a maiden turf rider. And uh, we just came, it's just like the stars were aligned. And when he came up to New York, I started hanging out. He came up, I think, March 11th. And I met him when he got off the van. There was a big story. He was horse of the year. He was a $6 million man. Um, had been just been syndicated for $6.08 million. And by the way, gold at that time was selling for $70 an ounce, which made him worth three times his weight in gold. <laughs> and uh, that kind of caught on as a little bit of a, a description of him. But uh, I just started hanging around him, and he won the Bay Shore, and then he won the Gotham on the lead. And he galloped out uh, a mile and a quarter that day in the Gotham in 159 and 2, which had he done that, if, if he were to do that at Churchill Downs, it would have been a new derby record. He did that at Aqueduct, galloping out, and uh, after running a mile in 133 and change. And so I'm thinking, you know, this dude is for real. But I also had Penny's misgivings. Uh, she has said on more than one occasion that she didn't think he'd win the Triple Crown because she didn't know if he could get through uh, physically because he hit the ground so hard. And I wondered, you know, how can a horse this large, he was 1,154 pounds, how can he, a horse that hits the ground as hard as he, unlike Reaver Ridge, his stablemate who had won the Derby in 72, who skipped across the ground like Bambi. And this horse hit the ground like a stag. And I thought, how can he stay sound? Well, he had a short cannon bone, and he was beautifully made. He had beautiful flat knees, and he stood to the training, which I didn't think he was going to do. So I thought I'd write a magazine story about him. And I thought, you know, Esquire, the exploits of a Triple Crown candidate or something. I had never thought of a book until much later, um, or during the Triple Crown. But I thought, you know, this was until really after the Preakness that I took it seriously. Um, because then it looked like, boy, this horse is going to do it. Everybody kind of said he's going to do it. But that's kind of why I started hanging around him. He was so charismatic. Uh, not too long ago, uh, I was down in Kentucky for the Derby, and I went to the horse park in Lexington, where there's a huge statue of Secretariat Eddie Sweat and Ron Turcott that Penny uh, raised the funding to erect the statue right near Manowar. And I bought, a, I, bought, I bought a paver, one of those little stones, and it's right in front of the statue. And I looked at it the other day, and I thought, I, at the time I wrote the paver, he only had so many words, very short. And I thought, you know, what in a very short paver can I, can I say about Secretary to sort of sum him up? And I thought of a line that Charles Hatton came up with from the Daily Racing Forum. After the Belmont, he said, his only point of reference is himself. And I thought, that says it as well as anything in a short period of time. And I still think that today. And if we had two hours, I could explain to you why. So we've established the greatness of this horse, which was confirmed when he destroyed the track record in the Kentucky Derby, a minute 59 and two-fifths seconds, one of only two to ever break two minutes, Monarcos being the other in 2001. 
But then came the Preakness. Now, first, let, let's talk about this race. Ronnie, that move around the first turn, a breathtaking move. Was that his decision or yours? Well, I thought all the time I rode the horse, I was in control. <laughs> well, that was my opinion. And uh, anyway, I, um, I had ridden him from behind in the, in the Kentucky Derby. I had given him a chance because of the... Uh, the uh, word memorial, which is something I even didn't mention before, and I will bring it up now. Uh, probably none. I, I know I, I haven't heard it, and never never read it that the horse broke through the gate before the uh, word memorial, which could have indicated to me as well as to anybody else, that there was something wrong with his mouth. Because when the assistant starter tried to stop him when he came in the gate, he threw his head, hit the gate, the gate opened, and he uh, the, went out. We had to bring, bring him back around. And anyway, that's not a question you asked me now, so I'm going to answer your, answer your question. So after having written him, that way, preserving him for the last part, enough horse to run a whole mile and a quarter. Uh, when I came to the Derby, I was so confident in him uh, that uh, I just grabbed a hold of him. And when I went to drop in, I picked up my head and I saw everybody had been driving the first quarter. And now they were all taking a hold of their horse. And that's when we flew under the radar. We just caught everybody with their pants down, excuse the word, and we just uh, blew by them, took a hold of them after I passed everybody, which I, I didn't really uh, ask him that much to run anyway, uh, for him to go on that way. But I did take him out and and let him run some and just put my hands back down and and then we cruise the rest of the way home. Uh, so we're, we're joined here by author, editor, and reporter Steve Davidowitz. And he was there that day when Secretariat won the Preakness. You looked at the teletimer, and I'm guessing you thought it didn't look quite right. What do you remember? Well, that wasn't exactly my first thoughts. Uh, I was still awed by the move that the horse made on the first turn. I did not see in my years of covering uh, racing a few years now in Maryland, any horse ever win a race with a move like that outside horses on that first turn. And I don't think there's been two or three in the history of uh, Pimlico that have ever done anything close to that, regardless of the class level or race. So I was still awed by that. And then there was some after the races session or dinner or whatever, and I was speaking with a, a daily racing form uh, writer named Jack Zariah who was downplaying the performance that Secretariat put up based on the time. And I said, well, what did he run? Because I didn't even notice the time at, the, at that point. And, oh, he went on 155. And I said, what, really? I said, I don't, I don't know. That sounds a little funny. And then within an hour, uh, uh, another reporter, Clem LaFlorio of the Baltimore News American, may he rest in peace, brought it to my attention that Frenchie Schwartz, the clocker for daily racing form, was up in the press box and along with another clocker on the opposite end of the press box, timed the race in 153 and 2, which would have been a track record. And Clem and I spent about an hour later that evening debating whether or not 
there was anything to this discrepancy, and he reminded me that there were issues with the Pimlico teletimer that stretched back several years. In fact, there was a track record, six furlong track record, credited to a filly named uh, Frances Flower in 109, and she actually ran, Clem said, 112. There were problems with the teletimer. So I went home, and I happened to have a tape of the Canyonero track record uh, performance, and I had uh, taped the secretariat uh, performance. And the only technology I had at that time to do anything about it was to unspool the tapes both of both, uh, both races, and secretariats was considerably shorter. He's dating himself here, by the way. I don't mind, <laughs> truthfully, you know. I don't. I'm happy to be here right now. <laughs> so, but in any case, uh, I, I examined it as best as I could, and I actually uh, wrote a four-page uh, chronology of what I thought might have happened, blah, 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 and I sent it to uh, Chick Lang, who is the general manager of Pimlico. Uh, Chick Lang has two major credits in his career that I think he should never be forgotten for. One is that he was the jockey agent for Bill Hartack at the peak of his career. And he also was the man who promoted the Preakness to nobody else's, uh, like he was the Matt, uh, uh, the Matt Wynn of, uh, of Pimlico and made the Preakness into what it has become. But on the negative side, he had the sensitivity about the uh, teletimer, that I guess he had some involvement in getting the teletimer set up, the company and what have you, and he would hear none of it, that there was a possibility that there, a record had been established. So I sent my material along to Bill Creasy of the CBS uh, uh, television network, and he, I believe, was the producer of the shows. And I asked him point blank if there would be any way that he could contact Ms. Uh, Chenery uh, and or the Maryland Racing Commission and see if anything could be checked into this and the story unfolded from there but it has taken 40 years for the record to finally be changed. Ms. Chenery, when did you become aware that this was an issue? When did it become a thorn in your side? I think when some reporter <laughs> brought it up. Blame the media. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was just thrilled to have won. I, I was not thinking about the time. And uh, you have not experienced the um, flood of media attention you get when you win a, uh, a, a classic race. But uh, I had no time to process this information. And, uh, uh, and I, I, truthfully, I didn't care. I thought, I got the best horse, whether the clock is right or not. <laughs> but it obviously became an issue for you at some point because you continued lobbying the Maryland Racing Commission. Yes. When did it start to matter to you? Uh, I'd say it was probably two days after the race that uh, you have time to let everything sink in. And Lucian was really um, not the one, but he, he urged me to apply to the Maryland Racing Commission for a rehearing. And in their wisdom, it was not granted. Charles C. Canty has been an ESPN and ABC racing analyst for a very long time and lived many, has lived many years down here in the Maryland area. What kind of buzz was there at this point in Maryland and in New York where you were writing about this story? 
Well, all of this happened before I started doing television. I was galloping horses in New York, so I wasn't present actually having seen this horse train literally every single day of his life. I was not at any one of his triple crown races. So I was kind of getting it the way everyone else was, you know, third hand through the media and and getting the feedback. I just remember watching the Preakness on TV, on a monitor, and thinking, what am I seeing? I mean, that move around the turn, I mean, not only the most extraordinary move at Pimlico, probably the most extraordinary move around a first turn I've ever seen anywhere in my life. And I think that the time became irrelevant to me. And I think, obviously, for his legacy, for 40 years, it has not diminished his, you know, his yardstick of him being his, his own frame of reference. So it didn't take anything away, but he earned it and he should have had it. And it's, it, I'm really glad that it finally happened because it's now the, the period is on the end of a fabulous sentence. I believe we have an audience question about uh, that move on the first turn. Uh, Jason Boggs from Philadelphia. I just wish I was as eloquent as Bill Knack with words to say what it means to be in the room with these people here. Uh, but, Ron, my question is for you. In, in your opinion, from your vantage point on top of the horse in the Triple Crown races, do you think the horse was running faster in that first turn in the Preakness or that final quarter mile in the Belmont? It was running faster around the turn. He was the kind of horse that really loved to run around turns. Uh, after the race, I didn't look at the uh, teletimer. But when I went upstairs uh, to the press box, uh, the first guy that ran into me was Joe Hirsch. And he says, uh, Ronnie, uh, do you think the time is right on this, in this race? And that's the first time I look at the teletimer. I said, hell no. <laughs> so he says, uh, well, he says, I got him on in a certain time. I don't recall exactly the time he told me. I said, well, I'll take your time over to the one I just looked at. And that's about uh, uh, all I heard uh, for a day or two uh, until we were flying to... Um, Flying to Massachusetts, we were running River Ridge in the Mass Cap. And on the plane, Mrs. Jenry, uh, Mr. Lauren, myself, that's when it really came up where CBS was going to run uh, uh, the races together and so on. That, that's when I heard that they were going to have some proof that uh, they broke the record. Mr. Knack, you were with this horse day in and day out as they were. When did this story start to foment in your eyes? I mean, at the Preakness? Right. Well, the, the, the Derby was the most spectacular Kentucky Derby ever run. The Preakness was the most spectacular Preakness ever run. And, of course, the Belmont was the most spectacular Belmont ever run. But as I came up after the Kentucky Derby, it was a performance for the ages. And it announced the horse. It really announced him. Uh, it's when he said, "I'm Muhammad Ali of horse flesh. I am, I am the Michael Jordan of horses. I am." You know, he sort of transcended ordinary standards. Uh, he ran every quarter mile in the Kentucky Derby faster than the preceding quarter. He went twenty-five, uh, twenty-four and four, twenty-four and two, twenty-three and you can't it, it, count yeah, yeah. And in other words, he was going thirty. Uh, five miles an hour the first time through the, by the stands at Churchill, and he was going 39 miles an hour the second time. 
He was going about close to five miles an hour faster. He's, his last quarter was in 23. His last half mile at Churchill was in 46 and 2. Horses don't do that. And it was so incredible the way he did it. And so when he came to Pimlico, uh, you'd think that he would ease him up a little bit and Lucian put the screws to him and worked him 5 eighths and 57 and 2. And he galloped out three quarters of a mile in 110 flat, which is the same time that the best sprinter in Maryland, Lee Matt, had just won a stake. He was running as fast in the morning as horses were in the afternoon. And when I saw that running time of 155, I thought it was really crazy. It didn't make any sense. And I learned out, learned later um, that, uh, well, you want me to tell a story about who I was standing with during the race? Sure. We've got plenty of time. <laughs> well, uh, I left the saddling area on the infield um, where Lucian saddled a horse and put Ronnie up, and I went up to the jockey's uh, porch right by the finish line because that's the best place to see it. Uh, I, I wanted to sacrifice seeing it from the press box in order to get, be able to get down on the racetrack real fast so I could see Ronnie when he came back smiling. So um, I was standing next to a guy, and I turned and I said, what's your name? And he said, I'm E.T. McLean. I said, what do you do? He said, I'm the racetrack clocker. And I said, I said, well, how can you clock from here? The, the, the finish line or the starting gate is about a, almost a quarter of a mile away, and the horses are coming right at you. How can you time from here? He said, well, I'm not clocking today. I said, oh, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm in charge of crowd control. And so I, I, he said, I'm going to go down on the racetrack and clear the crowds out so when the horses come back. And I said, gee, I'm going to go down there, too. We'll go down together. I'm going to meet Turcotte when he comes back. And so the, he never had a clock in his hand that I know of. And nobody was more shocked than I when I found out later that his running time of, that he had clocked in 154-2 and two had become the official time of the racetrack. And I thought, you know, hmm, very unusual. Is he here, by the way, Mr. <laughs> McLean? I don't know, I think he retired somewhere, but I want to ask him sometime, uh, you know... Uh, where was his watch? Where was your watch? <laughs> and how could you clock the Preakness with horses coming directly at you? Uh, Jack Harmon is here, the official clocker, and he, I'm sure he can tell you it's very difficult to do that. But uh, in any event, uh, that made me feel... I never, I never really believed the running time. Even if he had a watch and he clicked it, he wasn't in a place to do it accurately, and so I thought the clocking would be flawed. And uh, he, he clicked it about, uh, uh, about seven-fifths of a second too soon. We're going to take a very short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, we'll continue remembering the life of the late, great Penny Chenery with our Secretariat Timing is Everything event, so don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. Penny Chenery actually came within one race of winning two straight Triple Crowns. In 1972, Reva Ridge won both the Kentucky Derby and Belmont. He finished fourth in the Preakness to 19-to-1 upset winner BBB. But Penny Chenery will forever be known not just as the owner of the Great Secretariat, but for her own rise from dutiful housewife to horse owner and shrewd businesswoman. With Secretariat, she popularized the concept of syndicating a horse— selling breeding shares in her champion when he had just turned three years old, before the Triple Crown races had even happened. Let's return now to the Secretariat Timing is Everything event we held with Penny Chenery in Silver Spring, Maryland. We're back at the American Film Institute Theater here in Silver Spring, Maryland. In the gate, Secretariat Timing is Everything. 
We're now at the point of figuring out exactly how we were going to get to the bottom of this story. But I wanted to start with Miss Chenery, the legendary Penny Chenery. This controversy didn't affect his syndication price. He had already long since been syndicated. What did that mean to you? Bureaucracy. <laughs> I didn't think I didn't think it was a horse issue or a fan issue. Um, certainly, it was important for uh, his his record and, and uh, Pimlico's uh, stature. But uh, it just was not a big deal to me. As I, as I said, uh, I I had utter faith in my horse and. Um, how many people were there that day? 69,000 people, something like that. Uh, they saw. Um, he, he, he won. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, you did try two times unsuccessfully to get this time controversy settled. Uh, did you ever think it would be? Actually, no. And I was fascinated uh, that the hearing was granted and that uh, my partner, Lucian, Lucian, uh, uh, Leonard Lusky, uh, and my son, John, who's a film buff, were able to uh, demonstrate to the commission exactly what happened. Did you think it... Well, we'll get into exactly what it took to Mm -hmm. convince them. Did you think it would take that kind of an effort... Uh, well, yes, again, I say bureaucracy. Their, their um, uh, mission was to um, CYA. Uh, <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, I, as I said before, I really didn't care that much because he did win all three races and if if the time of Preakness wasn't recognized uh, the check was good and (laughs) (laughs) so we have with us as well the president and COO of the Maryland Jockey Club Tom Chukas when did you first become aware Mr. Chukas about this controversy and how, if any, uh, resolution you could come to with it? I mean, obviously, I was aware 40 years ago of what transpired. Uh, Penny and Leonard approached us at the Jockey Club. They made a pretty compelling case to us. And from the Jockey Club position, I guess, like I said in the interview afterwards, justice was served. Um, From our perspective, we wanted what was right and fair the only problem we had is, unfortunately, Penny and Leonard had to make the compelling case to the commission. So Penny and I approached the commission about the hearing, and fortunately it was granted. And uh, quite frankly, Penny's team did a fabulous job making the case. And at the end of the day, the commission did the right thing. Let's talk about the case that they made. We also have with us Bruce Speechler, senior assistant attorney for the state of uh, attorney general for the state of Maryland. What case did they make? How did they make their case? 
Well, if I can go back just a, just a little bit, Barry, uh, back in, in, in regard to the bureaucracy that Ms. Chenery referenced, uh, uh, that bureaucracy did play a significant role in 1973 because there was a hearing. Ms. Chenery petitioned the commission to have a hearing uh, in the aftermath of the Preakness uh, to challenge the, the time that was uh, assigned to it vis-a-vis uh, -vis the official clocker. And uh, the commission concluded uh, after a lengthy hearing uh, at that time that the, uh, while there was confusing evidence, uh, their, their uh, order reads, uh, it did appear that Secretariat may have uh, broken the track record in 1973. However, the commission said we are bound by our regulation, which then in place said that if there is a malfunction with the uh, electronic timer or other extenuating circumstance, the official time of the race shall be mandatory, shall be no discretion, the time as recorded by the official clocker. And that was what they were left with in 1973. Uh, in 1999, the Commission um, uh, repealed that regulation and promulgated a new regulation in its stead, perhaps deeming the uh, consequences uh, of that, that regulation draconian, uh, particularly in light of what Mr. Knack just revealed in regard to where the official clocker may have been located. Uh, and the accuracy of that of that recorded time, the commission uh, amended its regulation to read that if there was a malfunction or other extenuating circumstance regarding the electronic timer, then the official time of the race shall be the the time as recorded by the official clocker or a time uh, uh, that was presented by a method deemed to be accurate and reliable by the commission. So when that new regulation was promulgated, the doors were opened for the commission to uh, reassess uh, this matter and, and reconsider it. Uh, so in 1999, there was a petition for the commission to do just that. There was a hearing scheduled, but for reasons unknown to me, uh, the hearing was withdrawn, and there was an oral presentation made to the commission at its normal uh, monthly meeting the commission said, based upon that oral presentation, uh, was not convincing, was not uh, overwhelming to the point of the commission uh, changing the time. And that's where it remained from 1999 until last year when Mr. Lusky contacted me as counsel to the commission, as did uh, the Maryland Jockey Club, and said we do have uh, this overwhelming, compelling evidence to present. Uh, can we do it? And uh, I, there were three legal obstacles, and I know we don't want to get into too much legal jargon here, but there were three legal obstacles that we had to overcome. One was uh, reopening a case that was 39 years old that you alluded to before. And the law uh, in that regard is that while it, uh, it's a broad discretion within the agency to reopen a case, provided that it doesn't violate a law or, or violate the Constitution, and the commission said while it may be unprecedented, it is not abusive for us to exercise our discretion and, and, and reconsider this case. The second legal issue was uh, race judicata, whether they could retry a second time the same something they already tried before. And the commission concluded that um, in instances of fraud, mistake, inadvertence, surprise, change in the law, or change in fact, um, there can be a second trial or second hearing. 
And there was a change in the law, the change in the regulation. There was a change, in fact, the evidence that Mr. Lusky was going to be presenting on behalf of Ms. Chenery. And so the commission got over that hurdle. And then thirdly, whether the law, whether the um, regulation could be applied retroactively to 1973, the new regulation to 1973. And the conclusion there was because it involved procedural matters and remedial matters that it could indeed be applied retroactively. Steve Davidowitz. Man had walked on the moon four years before this happened. <laughs> what would have been so hard about going back and playing the tape and putting a timer on it? Well, the, the truth is that I, I, I'm reliving some of the uh, legal issues that uh, were just presented was almost giving me another headache that I've had <laughs> another, a number of times over this because your thought there, I think, should have been the predominant thought. There, there really was a track record set, and uh, it was v- very difficult for them not to recognize it rather than to recognize it. But I won't go into, you know, uh, all the nuances that, uh, that occurred then, except that uh, the, uh, the first hearing that was held, uh, all the evidence was available to CBS to bring down. They were the ones that uh, were given the, uh, the evidence on a silver platter. They're the ones who did the technical research in their own offices, and they could have brought down the equipment necessary to present the calibrated version of the uh, clockings, and it would have been indisputable that a track record had been sent, but they sent representatives down, and they were more... Uh, more uh, well, look, see on the film uh, the differences in the tape between the two horses side by side, and there wasn't enough grounds for the uh, commission to overturn the previous clocking. And I even wrote a column immediately afterwards that supported the commission's decision to this extent, that they were right, that they uh, uh, technically observed their rules, but, again, the truth was not uh, willed out. Now, one point I want to make that uh, I think is really, really important here I, I think, anyway. Uh, I fully understand uh, Penny's feelings that it really didn't matter. In fact, if there was no clocks running for any of the Triple Crown races, I doubt we would not have known, uh, and I think more positively we would have known, that we saw greatness on the racetrack. So independent of that fact, then why was it important to get it changed? And I think this is the underlying principle that was driving me and others uh, to want to see it changed. Uh, the racing game is a game built on the integrity of its records. People bet serious money based on the fact that they can trust the records, that whatever the horse ran supposedly is what he ran. You can use buyer speed figures, you can use rackets and numbers, but basically you have to know how fast they ran in the first place. And this was being denied with the greatest horse that we had ever seen, who had just, we think, run three triple crown track records, and, in fact, the momentum for this built up after the Belmont rather than between the Preakness and the Belmont because it now is clear that he set the track record in Kentucky. He set the track record by far in New York. And here was this hole in the, in the history that was clearly a hole, and it needed to be properly filled. The fact that it took so long uh, to get to the truth uh, is both an indictment of the uh, uh, the way our system sometimes works and also the praise of the system that it can still persist to go after the truth after so many years have gone by. So I'm really happy that the, uh, the effort was pursued by Leonard Lusky and, and Ms. Chenery and people alongside of her who wanted to go after this. And the racing fans around the country and the history books uh, relative to the game of racing have been, I think, uh, better served. Let's move forward to June of 2012, when the hearing has finally been called for. 
at the Ruffian Room in Laurel Park in Maryland, Laurel Racecourse. We have with us here Leonard Lusky. Leonard Lusky is Penny Chenery's confidant, and he's really the guy that orchestrated this whole thing to happen. So take us through how you built the case that finally got this done. Well, it wasn't just one person. It was truly a team effort. You know, you talk about the Meadow team and you see all the accomplishments. It was something that many people came together, certainly Mrs. Chenery, who said, yes, I think it's time that we try to right this wrong. Um, Mr. Spiesler, who was so communicative of what had happened previously. Uh, Mr. Chukas, who said, sure, you know, Maryland Jockey Club's on board. It was it really was a, uh, everyone saying, okay, let's, let's go for this. And, and with all that responsibility, it was on our team to make sure we had the evidence. So how'd you do it? It, it started actually with the Disney film. Um, we had been asked to get the original film footage by Disney for the Preakness, so that would be a part of the film. It was not a, a filmed aspect. It was the actual original footage. And in getting that the clearest footage that ever was available, it really became evident. You could almost hand-time this, as Jack Harmon's going to tell you. And you you see that this disparity is not just one of a nose or a head or a head bob. This was ten lengths of a difference. And how could this be? How could 39 years go by? So we analyzed the film. We brought in a lot of technical people to say, yes, the film speed, all, all the gobbledygook that goes along with the technical. What kind of people are we talking about? We had uh, Olympic timers who came in. We had uh, a series of different forensic film analysis done. It was all pointing to the same thing. Sandy Grossman, who was with CBS in the 1973 hearing, he provided so much information. It, it, it was just, it was boundless. I mean, we had everything we needed, and then we put it all together and uh, put it on one big presentation. Sounds more like an episode of Cold Case <laughs> than a horse racing I, story. I uh, let's turn to uh, Jack Harmon, who has been timing Maryland races since 1976, three years after Secretariat's Preakness. What convinced you, or how did you make the case that that time that was posted was, in fact, too slow. Well, when Leonard called me, um, he brought the tape, and we did it actually with the Internet. And um, so I timed it like three times, and I I got the uh, 153 flat. I did it all three times. And I said, well, uh, I think what happened was, and we measured it out through the things of the race, uh, that the time started when the gates opened up. We think that maybe someone was in front of the beam, and the time actually starts at the marker pole. It doesn't start Wait, when they come out. Of the explain that in better detail. Well, see, what happens is they park the gate like 50 feet behind the marker pole where the race actually starts. That's, that's the measurement. And um, what happened was, like I say, uh, somebody was in front of it, a bird could have flew in front of it. The beam could have malfunctioned. And when the person that was timing the race on the visumatic timer, not the teletimer, I'm the teletimer. That's the company that's in there now. And um, what happened was that's when the time started. So you're talking 50 feet. And for every length of a, of a horse, 
is probably like 10 feet. So you're talking almost like a, a, a second and a fifth. So um, that's actually what we think happened. We, we know what, what happened. And I'm 110% sure that that's what happened. Before we get to Bruce Spitzler to make sure this was all kosher, that he agreed with all of this, Leonard, tell us how you researched finding the photographs, finding the visual evidence that really cemented this case. Well, one of the big important things that we tried to do that hadn't been done is take the existing fractions that were recorded at the different, the quarter pole, the half pole, and see how they measured up. Was it a total clock malfunction? And what we found was all of them matched up perfectly except for the first one. The first quarter pole, we showed that it was closer to 23 seconds, whereas the original time was 25 seconds. And that was, we had narrowed the, what the field was to where the problem was. And we wanted to try to find where this quarter pole camera was. There really wasn't a quarter pole back then, and Jack was one that brought that up. They had a camera on a small pedestal right on the turn, but we couldn't find a picture. And uh, the Baltimore Sun, for all praise to you, because we looked through 20,000 archival images and finally found one, the smoking gun. It was there, this pedestal where the camera was that put everything into the right perspective. So Bruce Spitzler, Senior you, uh, Assistant Attorney General for the State of Maryland, you heard this case made before you. What finally convinced you that this was a valid case? Well, first and foremost, I'm counsel to the Racing Commission, so it was the members of the Maryland Racing Commission, and there are nine of them who heard this matter. Uh, I sit with them as their counsel and provide legal advice, and I was the one who drafted the memorandum in order that resulted from their hearing. But Personally, uh, I think some of the most compelling testimony and evidence was what Leonard just referenced, and, and that is, first of all, it was demonstrated, and I wasn't even aware of this, and I've been a racetrack fan for many years, having grown up just four blocks from Pimlico, um, that, that the race does not start when the gates come open. Uh, the race starts uh, when the first horse crosses the beam of light, that emanates from the marker pole, as Jack mentioned, uh, in this instance, the 316th pole, because the race is a mile and 316ths. So um, what was so telling was that the fractions, and it was broken down digitally on film uh, with, with a digital clock watch on every frame, uh, and every frame was numbered so you could track all of these uh, matters not only in regard to Secretariat's race in 73, but also Tank's Prospect's race in 85. And, and they were stacked, showed, shown one after, you know, one on top of the other. And Secretariat clearly wins, uh, against Tank's Prospect and, um, and, and Cannonero the second from the 71 race. Um, but was most, what was most telling was when you broke down those fractions, the fractions as recorded by the electronic timer, and the fractions recorded by the clocker himself, the, the human clocker, and the fractions that come about from the digitalized film are precisely the same except for the first quarter mile. And in the first quarter mile, there's a two-second variation between the electronic timer and the digitalized film. And so that, to me, was the most telling of all 
uh, and, it, and there was a bevy of, inf of, of uh, evidence and testimony that was presented, and the commission concluded that this evidence was indeed overwhelming and convincing to establish that Secretariat had raised the 73 Preakness at 153. And with the numbers now being accurate, Ms. Chenery, how do you put this into perspective now that Secretariat broke three track records? Now, we should also point out he does not currently hold the track record for a mile and three sixteenths at Pimlico. Farm away broke that record in the 91 Pimlico special, but he still holds three stakes records and had set three track records. How do you put those kinds of numbers into perspective? Whose perspective? <laughs> uh, it, it didn't really depress me that he didn't have all three uh, track records. Um, but for the, the sake of racing, it is important uh, that they be accurate and reliable. And I have to thank it congratulate the, the people who made this inquiry happen and produced the indisputable ev evidence to uh, put in stone what we already knew. I believe we have an audience question. Let's have our, our audience member. Hi. My name's Linda Good. I'm from Parkton, Maryland. And my question is for Ron. I think every person we come in contact with during our lives gives us something, leaves us with something that helps us become better. I personally believe that's true for horses, too. So my question for you is, how did your time with Secretariat impact your life? How did my time impact my life? I'll tell you, it's very hard to measure. I, uh, I had a wonderful career. I was a leading writer when I rode in Canada. I was leading writer everywhere that I rode in Maryland. And I also had a beautiful career before. But he was uh, the icing on the cake. Believe me, he was. I mean, I've been ridden the greatest thoroughbred of all time in Canada, uh, Northern Dancer. And now we come with the greatest horses of all time. In, in the world, in my opinion, he, uh, you know, it's, it's just something that I, it's not, dreams are not even made of this. I mean, I can't, I, I would never dream of that. Charles, the Northern Dancer, whom Ron just mentioned, was a fast horse. There weren't movies made about Northern Dancer. Why has Secretariat resonated so strongly down through the decades? One of the things that I carried away from Secretariat and his amazing transition over above every everything and everybody, every other horse, was the ease in which he did everything. He did everything so easily that sometimes I wonder if you really had gotten down and ridden him hard, I would just wonder how much more we would have seen. It just seemed like he pulled you to the lead. I'm not saying you didn't ride him just right. <laughs> but... He did it so easy, Ronnie. You always are just sitting so still up there, and he just takes you there. Well, I'll tell you, on the Belmont, I think if he had wings, we might have taken off. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, uh, 
Excuse me. To explain one thing here that was not mentioned, when you ride a race, if you have a speed horse and you're parked on the outside, what do you do? You gun your horse out of the gate and try to get to the inside side to save ground. What was done in a secretary's race? A Colletage was on the outside. He was the speed horse. And what did he do? He gunned his horse out of there, and he really barreled down to the quarter pole, I mean, past the, past the wire. I just let them go. But then when I went to drop in, I saw everybody grab a hold of their horse. That's when I just let my, I let secretary go. And that will explain to you why the first, this, that uh, first quarter was registered so slow and yet was run so fast <laughs> because everybody gunned their horse out of there, but it was not registered that way. Bill Knack, you get the final word here. Who better than the best wordsmith I've ever seen? Secretariat didn't win every one of his starts, and there's been such long gaps between Triple Crown winners. What does that say about just how special those three races really were? Well, there's been, uh, since, since he came of age as a three-year-old, there have been close to a million and a half horses who have been old enough uh, to run in the Triple Crown. And it's just so special to know that out of that million and a half horses, you happen to hook up with one uh, two months after becoming a turf rider uh, who turned out to be the best. That was one in a, one in, in a, in a one and a half million. Um, I really feel blessed for having uh, had the opportunity to uh, follow him around and to get to know Penny and Ron and, uh, and, and the gang, Eddie Sweat, Charlie Davis, it's been a joy. I can't uh, tell you. And you know what's really kind of nice? I, I think the horse has proven himself over the last 40 years to be the best handicap horse of all time because he's been carrying Penny and me and Ron uh, all, at, all at once. Um, I'm enough, but, you know, it's, uh, it's just been a, a real joy to be around him. He's uh, become, I think, a symbol of excellence. Um, you know, he was a kind of a big innocent, you know. He, uh, he was a mute. He never gave an interview. <laughs> Nobody ever had to call 9-11 um, because of him. Didn't beat up his wife and girlfriends. Didn't do drugs. Uh, didn't have a crazy agent. Um, and I think he came to symbolize a kind of a purity that all of us uh, really admire and look up to. And I think uh, that's why he has transcended the sport. He has become a symbol of general excellence. It has been a real joy being with all of you here to share this wonderful story. Thank you for being here. Thanks to our tremendous panelists. Remember to catch In the Gate every week on ESPN.com. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.